You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Let us join our hearts together again in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 11. It may be found on page 891 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. The book of Acts is full of stories about the ways followers of Jesus struggled to define who they were and how they shaped who the church would become. Hear now these words from Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened to me three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and to not make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had fallen upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that God gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I am grateful to my friend, the Reverend Tim Hughes Williams, for his paper for our preaching group, By the Vine, on Acts 11. Tim unpacks the historical and scriptural context for us. He points us toward Leviticus 11. Now, we could read that whole chapter for an exhaustive catalog on dietary practices, but Leviticus 11, 2 through 8, gives us a fair taste. Hear these verses from Leviticus. From among all the land animals, these are the creatures that you may eat. Any animal that has divided hoofs and is cleft-footed and chews the cud, such you may eat. But among those that chew the cud and have divided hoofs, you shall not eat the following. The camel. For even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hoofs. It is unclean for you. The rock badger. For even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hoofs. It is unclean for you. The hare. For even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hoofs. It is unclean for you. The pig. For even though it has divided hoofs and cleft-footed, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean for you. It is difficult for us, far removed from the Old Testament world, to really catch the magnitude of Peter's vision. We tend to see dietary restrictions in very legalistic terms, a matter of obedience that in some cases may seem a bit trivial or even ridiculous to us today. But there is far more at stake than simple obedience or even legal concerns. Israel's dietary regulations were not just a matter of law. They were a matter of identity. Just 300 years before the book of Acts was written, the Seleucid Greeks were encroaching on Israel and forcing Greek ways of life onto them. Teaching the Torah and circumcision were prohibited. The temple was ultimately taken over by the Seleucids and declared a temple of Zeus and a sacrifice pig was made in the Holy of Holies. Soldiers were then sent throughout all the surrounding communities, forcing Jews to eat pork upon penalty of death. Some refused, but many complied. Worth noting, an old priest named Matthias refused to comply and killed a fellow villager who did. Matthias fled with his five sons, one of whom, Maccabeus, led the ultimate revolution to retake the city and the temple, a story commemorated now in the festival of Hanukkah. All this is to say, observance of the dietary laws was not just a matter of obedience to law. It was a matter of religious identity, a symbol of who Jews were as people of God. It is this background that Peter faced when God told him to eat the unclean food. It is, in effect, a change from everything that had been taught as important in his faith. He faced nothing less than the total transformation of the shape and framework of his commitment to God. God was asking him to leave a place of security and identity and launch out into uncharted waters with nothing more than a vision to guide him. This is no small thing God has asked of Peter. So what happens when God's new word contradicts tradition? 
Peter has only one option. He must give voice to his experience. Here in Acts, he stands before his Jewish brothers and sisters in utter vulnerability. He has no textual reference to fall back on, no prophetic utterance to conjure the collective memory of his people. The prophets did not prepare him for this Gentile emergency. Peter is speaking to those who know him well and know their faith well. This is always the most difficult sight from which to speak, isn't it? It is much more difficult to share a new or maybe even contradictory word to people whose opinion matters to you. Peter had no ground on which to stand with his revelation beyond simply his own experience. So step by step, Peter testifies, shares his experience of God pressing in on him. The Gentiles have been touched by God just as we have, Peter says. This is a miracle, yes, but it is also shocking news to faithful Jewish followers of the way. Can you imagine it? Peter's not only done the unthinkable, visited, and eaten with unclean Gentiles, but now he is telling God's people that what he's done isn't only forgivable, it's a new word from God. It's a new way that these early Christians should start living. Peter speaks. And then, his own people are reduced to silence. It's the kind of silence that would make me cringe with discomfort. Who likes an awkward silence? The commentator Willie James Jennings hears something different in that quiet space. He writes, This silence is a break in space and time and sound that God has orchestrated. This break is, does not silence Israel's past, but it is a break in a musical sense, in a sense of jazz improvisation. As Wynton Marsalis reminds us, in the break, the band stops playing and leaves space for a soloist to play. In the break, the soloist is alone for a moment, carrying the time, suspended in air, and holding everything together in a singular performance. Peter. Peter brings them to the break, but the Spirit of God carries the time, holding it in the silence. The moment of silence after the testimony reveals a God who has been keeping time beautifully and faithfully with Israel and now expects the hearers to feel the beat, remember the rhythm, and know the time. These listeners follow the break and join back into the ongoing song and praise of Israel. God has again done a marvelous thing beyond our anticipation. Even Gentiles receive the repentance that leads to life. This is a song sung for those outside the household of faith. The restoration of Israel will involve divine love for Gentiles. After the silence, God's love had modulated into a new key. But the rhythm and song of Israel continues. The beat goes on. Acts 11 is a moment of reorientation, where the Spirit is teaching us a crucial lesson that the church must constantly remember. God yet speaks word, and God always presses against word. 
What God has said in the past is pressed against what God is saying now. Israel shows us that we are always positioned between these two words, the old word and the new, and destined for yet more hearing from a God ever extended toward us in grace. This in-between position has often been painful as the body of Christ. It can be hard to discern the path ahead with all its twists and turns. And so our struggle as the church is twofold. We struggle to hear the new word that God is constantly speaking, and we struggle to see the link between the new word and the word previously spoken. The church has always rightly grounded its thinking in historical continuity with the word of God in scripture, tradition, and doctrine. For Christians, the past is extremely important, but what's far more important is how we deploy the past in order to prescribe present and future actions. Certainly, the past matters. The church exists because God has spoken in the past, and without a sense of that history, we lack clarity about our current path and journey. But the past, as important as it is, is never the point of the life of faith. The point is the present moment with the living God who is with us now. The God who speaks to us now calls us into the risk of hearing a new word, a word that orients us toward the unanticipated, unprecedented, where the reconciling God is active. Peter found himself in the midst of such a world in Acts 11, where what God was doing in and through him among the Gentiles pressed him body and soul up against the word God had spoken to God's own people Israel. The key for us, seen in this moment for Peter, is to refuse the binary naming of the past word is false and the present word is true, or the present word is false and the past word is true, and to discern through the Spirit the line of continuity between past and present. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 point to the present and intimate speaking of the living God made flesh and one with us in the challenging task of hearing God's words pressed up against the old ones. The beloved community is a term first coined more than a hundred years ago by philosopher-theologian Josiah Royce, who founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., however, who popularized the term and invested it with deeper meaning. The core value of Dr. King's beloved community was the idea of agape love. King distinguished between three types of love, eros, romantic love, philia, affection between friends, and agape, which he described as understanding, redeeming goodwill for all, and overflowing love, which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative, the love of God operating in the human heart. He said, agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving others for their sakes. Agape love is seeking to preserve and create community. It's not difficult to trace this kind of thinking back to the emerging consensus among Jesus' followers and acts. 
The entire book is staged around dialogue, conflict, and revelation. It is a fact that the creation of true community across diversity generates conflict. Conflict is a feature, not a flaw of the process. M. Scott Peck maps out four stages of community formation. These stages include things like experiences of chaos, emptiness, conflict, and change. But the fourth and final stage of community for Peck is called the true community. Peck states that true community is both joyful and realistic. It requires little deaths in many of the individuals. Members begin to speak their most vulnerable truths, and others will simply listen, hold the time, keep the tempo, and stick with the midst of reorientation. It requires vulnerability, curiosity, and openness. What does a new word look like? We'll know it by its fruit. That which builds life together, life abundant, and deepening life in God is truly a word from God. Only a few verses after our passage in Acts 11, verse 26, there's an introduction of Gentiles to the church that occasions the first use of a new term, the term Christian. A new name was needed to reflect the greater diversity of Christ followers. The New Testament is chock full of grace toward the outsider. Jesus and his church's willingness to include them to include people like us and include people not like us. Make being a community that much more difficult and that much more beautiful. Our very name, Christian, is born out of the wrestling that comes with finding the true, beloved community. May we be brave enough and bold enough to be like these early believers in Acts to be open to God's word then and open to God's word now, to find that place in between where we can do the hard but good work of discernment, that we might be open to the work of the Spirit, to see where God's word is calling us today, that we might be that true and blessed community in this time and place. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.